I'm Anthony Penn. Welcome to Pen Drop. You're in for a treat today. Today we have with us Dr. Christopher Cameron. Dr. Cameron earned a PhD in history from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and he's currently a professor of history and director of Africana Studies at the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Dr. Cameron is also the founding president of the African American Intellectual History Society. In addition to courses related to the intellectual history of the United States, he teaches one of the few courses in the United States dealing with unbelief in America. His publications include The Abolitionist Movement, Documents, Decoded, and the book we're going to chat about today, Black Freethinkers, A History of African-American Secularism. Thanks for joining us, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. So let, let me start with this. You dealt with the urge and the mechanisms for uplift within African-American communities and kind of showed the slow progress over time, change over time. What brought about this book? So this this was really a, a confluence of different factors. In sort of mid to late 2012, I was wrapping up revisions on my book to plead our own cause, which deals with Puritanism and, and Black abolitionism in uh, Massachusetts. And as you know, just part of the uh, part of the process for that, I was going through. Uh, filling in some citations and whatnot. And I came across uh, Al Rabito's book, Slave Religion, in my footnotes. And something just prompted me to read the book again. I, I hadn't read it since doing my comprehensive exams in grad school. So I went and, and just read Rabito again. Um, and I'm really, really glad I did because you know, the first time around, I hadn't come across this line towards the very end of the book where he says, uh, you know, he, he'd gone through and, and, you know, explored this creation of a syncretic form of uh, African-American Protestantism um, and, and black religion. But he says, you know, of course, not all slaves believed in a just and benevolent God who was looking out for their interests. Some simply couldn't reconcile their, their lives in slavery um, with, you know, uh, with the idea of a God. And so I was like, huh, okay, he only has two paragraphs that, that you know, provide a couple of examples of uh, religiously skeptical slaves. But that really, really piqued my interest. And then right around the same time as this, I came across a uh, YouTube video as part of a series called Black Folk Don't. Um, produced by uh, Angela Tucker. And one of the episodes, is only five, six minutes, one of the episodes was entitled Black Folk Don't Do Atheism. And so I was like, oh, really? Because I, I just read this little piece by Rabito talking about, you know, uh, atheist slaves back in the 18th century. So that just prompted me to, to start looking, right? I, I had personally become an atheist maybe two, two and a half years before that. And I, I was wrapping up my first book. I was looking for a new book project. So I thought, 
um, you know, th- there could really be something here. So I just started looking for everything I could find. I started coming across, you know, uh, blog posts from African Americans for Humanism. I came across your work uh, by these hands, right? Um, and and I started to think that you know maybe there is something here, and this this could potentially be uh, my next book project. So that's sort of how I got started on it in 2012, and. Uh, seven years later, the book came out. Fantastic, fantastic. And, and I think you are absolutely right. You get historians and others who, in passing, will mention, not all Black folks believe. But it's typically an aside, even in light of Benjamin Mays' work, that wonderful book that chronicles critique of God ideas within Black religious thought and within cultural production. Why do you think scholars have been so slow to investigate free thought within African-American communities as a kind of robust, alternate mode of thinking and doing? Uh, I think there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, One has to do with kind of the project of Black history in and of itself, which uh, started largely as a political project aimed at combating uh, racism, combating Jim Crow through showing positive examples of morally upright, respectable black people who uh, adhered to American values. They were patriots. uh, They were good Christians, right? And this, I think this mode of uh, writing history, this kind of celebratory history really dominated the field uh, for many, many years, right? Um, But even more recently, I think if we're looking at scholarship over the past 20 or 30 years or so, uh, that that kind of respectability politics and the actual writing of black history hasn't been quite as prevalent. But nevertheless, the overwhelming majority of African-American historians themselves um, have been religious. So I, I think it's just something that's not even really in their radar or on their radar, right, um, as kind of a possibility, as something that's been significant uh, within Black culture. So, Chris, as you think about the development of free thought in African-American communities over the course of time, what are two or three of the values, two or three of the virtues that really stand out? I would say the uh, really the staunch importance of political engagement, right? Um, you know, one of the things that my book shows is right from the beginning, African-American secularism was uh, in large part intertwined uh, with black radical politics and black freethinkers never really had the sort of luxury of divorcing their secularism from their political commitments, right? So for for black free thinkers like Hubert Harrison or Harry Haywood or Louise Thompson Patterson and others, um, their their secular thought really informed how they thought about politics and how they sort of engaged um, with politics and pushed them towards more active political engagement. I think about people like 
uh, or someone like James Foreman, who in his book, uh, The Making of Black Revolutionaries, talks about how he, he feels um, belief in God has hurt his people, right? Um, because it, it's caused them to sort of look to heaven to develop this sort of otherworldly um, outlook uh, instead of taking action for themselves. Now, this was something of an exaggeration, right? You had the social gospel, and for many for many people, religion did motivate political activism, but it's an exaggeration that was based in some truths, right, uh, as some scholars have shown, especially of the period uh, leading up to 1930s, 1940s or so. Um, so this uh, importance of political engagement, I think, has really been central uh, to black free thought. Um, and that's one thing that in many ways distinguishes it from the tradition of white secularism, which at times has been uh, overly political, but at, at other times has said that secularism has nothing to do uh, with politics. It's an intellectual posture uh, against religion, and, and it can be divorced from the political realm. Um, so I think that's one. And another is just sort of a very questioning and kind of skeptical bent of mind, right? Um, so, uh, you know, not a, a, a mindset that doesn't allow for kind of easy conformity um, to the norms of American society, right? Um, and, and even the norms of African American society. So just a, a questioning of everything that we know. Um, and really trying to get at the truth using reason and human understanding. And so if if free thought doesn't develop strictly as a rejection of the black church, can you highlight for us some of the other points of entry into free thought for black folks? Yeah, so um, I, I think another main point of entry is a rejection of white supremacy, right? Um, so, and that's that's probably even more important than a rejection of the black church. So free thought emerged, um, I found, in the 1830s and 1840s out of the sort of lived experience of enslaved people who were sort of looking at the uh, hypocritical actions of their Christian masters who would go to a church service on Sunday morning and then physically assault or, or sexually assault they're enslaved people on Sunday afternoon, right? So um, I think one of the kind of main um, origins of black secularism in the United States is actually um, an engagement and, and sort of a struggle against slavery and white supremacy, right? Um, and, and that even remains prominent in the 20th century as well, right? That's the origins, and that's something that kind of differentiates the beginnings of black and white free thought, right? Um, but that remained important throughout the 20th century because we see um, these different kind of inflection points where where black free thought becomes, you know, more popular at certain times. One of those uh, inflection points is really right about 1915, 1916 or so, which just so happens to coincide with um, renewed activity by the KKK, um, the creation of films like Birth of a Nation, which is uh, streamed in or played in uh, Woodrow Wilson's White House, 
um, nativism and anti-communism uh, with the Red Scare of 1919. Um, so this is one of the kind of key waves um, of black secularism, right? Um, Susan Jacoby in her book Freethinkers refers to the period from uh, roughly 1875 to 1915 as the golden age of free thought. Well, the end of that period, I think, can be seen as kind of a golden age of black free thought, where you have some of the sort of most prominent black intellectuals and artists and political figures um, who uh, are becoming secularists, right? Um, and we see a similar dynamic in the civil rights era. This is another period where you start to see a lot more kind of evidence uh, of black secularism. So I think the sort of struggle against uh, white supremacy and racism, in addition to um, kind of opposition to the black church and the cultural power of ministers, is another kind of defining feature uh, of black free thought. So in terms of black humanists, atheists, and free thinkers who participated historically in the struggle against injustice, what are some of the differences that their involvement made in terms of the vision of justice, what is meant by justice, and the moral and ethical values that guided this work? Sure. Um, I think one of the key differences is the sort of insertion of um, economic justice um, during the early 20th century. So this is a period when you start to see a very close connection between critiques of capitalism, uh, critiques of Christianity, and of imperialism, uh, both at home uh, and abroad, right? So um, he, here I'm thinking of figures like W.E.B. Du Bois, um, Langston Hughes, Harry Haywood, and uh, perhaps most prominently Hubert Harrison, right? who in a number of different writings sort of linked together global white supremacy, capitalism, and Christianity, uh, and, and argued that, um, uh, that discrimination against black people was not only racist, um, but was also classist, right? Um, so you start to see the beginnings of a kind of intersectionality uh, in black political life, and that would really continue with some of the writings of um, people like uh, Louise Thompson Patterson or some of her personal writings um, and uh, Nella Larson's novel Quicksand where you start to get gender thrown in there, right? Um, and this kind of intersection between uh, race, class, and gender, which would really kind of prefigure um, the intersectionality that would uh you know, come to sort of dominate or, or not necessarily dominate, but be really significant in black intellectual life about 50 years later. So we see some of these early uh, black free thinkers uh, really be kind of pioneers in, um, in, in their critiques of uh, patriarchy, right? In their critiques of uh, classism. So let, let's stick with, um, uh, du Bois, and let's add in James Weldon Johnson. We talked a little earlier about uh, Christian influence, grammar, and vocabulary. And it seems to me with these two figures, and there are others, but with these two figures, you get, you get free thinkers manipulating and altering this language, right? And kind of 
seeing the cultural value in it while denying its theological pull. So you get someone like James Weldon Johnson who can appreciate the sermonic style, right? The way these black preachers do their thing. He finds something compelling in that poetic expression, but devoid of theological commitment. And with Du Bois, you get this appreciation for the black church. You get him providing prayers for black people, right? Kind of using this prayer model as a kind of poetic way of engaging a world that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But again, removing the theological trappings, the theological baggage typically associated with that language. Is, is this something, is this something prominent within black free thought? Or are these outliers? No, th- this is definitely prominent within Black Free Thought. So you, you listed two of the um, key figures who sort of take that approach, but um, we could also add in Langston Hughes to that, right? Um, Zora Neale Hurston, and probably most importantly, James Baldwin, right? Um, so, you know, they're... I mean, what they're doing is, you know, take taking these key parts of African-American religion, using them for their own purposes. Um, but it's also showing that um, African-American culture more broadly has uh, sort of been critically influenced by these religious, not only concepts, but ways of being um, without necessarily having to believe uh, in the sort of God idea, right? One of the ways this came up is in um, multiple uh, sort of conversion narratives to atheism, where um, folks like Langston Hughes um, and James Foreman were uh, they were on the mourners' bench in their um, in their evangelical black churches. This they're describing a moment where, by all rights, they should have converted to Christianity, and indeed they they did fake uh, such conversions. But writing from a distance, you know, twenty, thirty years down the line, they're actually telling us that these became the moments where they sort of saw behind the veil, right? Um, and and they actually became atheists at those moments they were supposed to be Christian, right? Um, R- Richard Wright has um, a, a similar experience in in his autobiography, and and he notes this really interesting um, uh, this is interesting part where he's he's talking to some of his friends um, about their baptism, and his friends admit to him that they don't believe in the power of baptism. They they don't believe that anything had happened, but you just sort of go along with it, right? So that that you know these practices um being baptized being up on the mourner's bench adopting a particular rhetorical style even using highly religious language um doesn't necessarily have to go along with the belief in god they actually become um sort of just broader elements uh of black culture right I mean, that's an interesting point. We can occupy more than one social space simultaneously, right? We are complex that way. And, and that brings me to a, a point you raised concerning another extremely prominent figure, 
Uh, you say at one point that Frederick Douglass expressed deistic and agnostic views at times and was a religious liberal and humanist. Can you kind of help us think through how Frederick Douglass and by extension others hold in creative tension those various points of identity? Sure. Um, you know, D Douglas to me is really one of the more interesting figures um, in the history of black religion and is one person that's really been kind of all over the religious spectrum. So um, the most in-depth biography of him by David Blight argues that his religious faith informed a sort of prophetic style uh, that guided his life and activism. And many other scholars have argued for the importance of uh, Christianity or religion in his life. And I don't necessarily disagree, but I do argue that we have to look at the entirety of his life, not just sort of select moments. And we must seriously engage with um, his statements that were critical of or dismissive uh, of religion, which I think the, the works that um, argue you know, primarily <clears throat> for his religiosity, uh, th they don't do that, right? They just sort of ignore uh, some of his statements that are dismissive of religion. But when we do look at those, I think he should be seen as a free thinker. At certain moments in his life, uh, he questioned whether God existed or whether we could know he existed. At other moments, he actively stated that God did not exist um, but many times Douglas referenced believing in God while at the same time doubting God's sovereignty and omnipotence. Um, this comes out most clearly in the final meeting of the American Anti-Slavery Society in 1870, which I believe you discuss in your in your book By These Hands, right? He's he's at this this last meeting um, of some of the most prominent abolitionists and, and activists in the country. People are thanking God that that God freed the slaves, and Douglas rose and said, I like to thank men. Uh, I like to thank the men and women who ran away and voted for freedom with their feet. And he says, it's only through the actions of such individuals that I can come to know God at all, right? Um, for me, another interesting aspect of Douglas's views that place him within the bounds of American religious liberalism is that he could also be seen as a transcendentalist. Transcendentalists believed in – there are a few different components of it, um, but uh, most simply it was a belief in the sort of divinity of man, right, um, a sort of reverence for nature, a, a, a notion that um, human values and morality come from sort of our own reasoning and experience rather than through passed down through sort of stale uh, traditions, right? Um, and, and that we kind of create our own values in the here and now. So you don't necessarily need to rely on sort of sacred texts and sacred books. If you think across uh, humanist organizations, for example, it seems to me the wrong question often dominates, right? That question of why would black people 
embrace a religion that was used to enslave them, when it seems to me there's a better question to ask. Why hasn't humanism been more appealing? Exactly. Yeah, I, I, I was just talking to somebody um, about this at the Freedom from Religion Foundation conference a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, I, I get this question often, and it's it's often phrased as, you know, um, why are why are black people so religious or, or whatnot, right? Um, and and I respond now, well, why aren't white freethinkers doing a better job uh, of bringing blacks and uh, Latinos and and other races into the fold, right? So I think we can sort of uh, flip that around. But to me, um, that that question is based off of racist assumptions about the sort of barbarism and savagery of African Americans that that goes back of course to the beginning of the slave trade but we can even see it uh, very prominently in the writings and speeches of 19th century white freethinkers um Nathan Alexander has just published a really great book called Race in a Godless World where where he explores uh, the intersections of race and atheism in the United States and Britain from uh, about the Civil War till uh, the start of World War One, and one of the things that he shows is that you know there were a lot of white freethinkers in the late 19th century who bought in you know lock, stock, and barrel into the common racist assumptions of their day and argued that basically African Americans were sort of too savage. Um, too barbarous, uh, lacked the capabilities of, uh, you know, critical thought and reason, um, and thus could not be a part of the free thought fold, right? So it was a kind of a convenient excuse um, to sort of segregate off African Americans from the broader free thought movement. Um, and, and I think we, we see sort of lingering effects of that that notion even if we don't have the sort of outright or hostile racist statements that we saw back then there there's still this notion that black people are more emotional than than reasonable or or logical right and that's one of the things that that keeps them tied uh to the black church instead of um embracing secularism I think that's absolutely correct. And I think humanist organizations often work based upon a false premise that if you free yourself from religion, you free yourself from harmful ideologies. And as a result, these organizations don't adequately address white privilege. Right. So, for example, separation of church and state. Extremely important. Science education, extremely important, but neither one of those would have kept Trayvon Martin alive, George Fort Lloyd alive, Breonna Taylor alive, right? That it requires a tackling of white supremacy and white privilege. And our agenda within humanist organizations, the humanist movement writ large, it seems to me, has been too lax when it comes to this kind of internal critique of white privilege and white supremacy that live within these movements. 
Absolutely. I think um, Sakivu Hutchinson probably uh, explores this uh, better than anyone in, in her books, Moral Combat and, and Godless Americana, where, you know, she's she's looking at the history and contemporary um, politics of secular and humanist organizations um, and, and showing that, you know, if if humanist organizations want to appeal to black people, then one of the things they need to do is take on some of the functions that black churches have taken on, right? Um, and have, you know, failed to do adequately. Um, so they need to start, they need to start uh, actively working to address things like the school to prison pipeline or um, housing disparities or lack of affordable housing, healthcare disparities, right? Um, that, you know, if, if folks don't have enough food to eat, they're not going to hear your message of secularism, right? It's not just – people aren't just looking towards reasonable ideas, but they're looking towards um, ideas that also sort of mesh with their lived reality. So if, if black folks start seeing white humanists out here uh, protesting alongside them and building institutions alongside them – and contributing to a more just world, that in itself is going to make uh, humanism more appealing to black people. In some of these circles, it seems to me there's an implicit assumption that critique is activism. Right. So I'm critiquing the black church. So I'm all about the well-being of black people, as opposed to recognizing that the advancement of black people, the ending of anti-black racism requires something of white people well beyond critique. They got to give something up. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of funny because even though I'm an atheist and I critique the black church, I don't really like it when white people do it like because <laughs> I'm like, you know, I, I don't necessarily get down with the black church, but it's still our church. <laughs> so, yeah, j just that critique in the in the lack of uh, kind of combined with the lack of substantive action rings really hollow and at at times rings a little racist right um you're, you're just critiquing our church but not offering or supporting uh any alternatives to that within secular organizations there can often be an kind of anti-cultural stance a deep suspicion and denial of ritual of meaning-making processes, mm -hmm. right, that prevent us from providing a soft place for folks to land, right? They're not anti-intellectual. They're all about that. Read a book. But opposed to cultural mechanisms that folks have used to make life meaningful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I just started reading... Uh, Sasha Sagan's book for small creatures such as we, um, which is talking about this this importance of ritual for human beings in general, right? And, and, and this speaks to 
the the sort of broader um, cultural influence of African American religion beyond theism, in that you know a, another function that uh, churches often serve, um, you know, going beyond the social and the educational and whatnot, is just marking the really important and significant moments in people's lives, right, and providing a sort of structure uh, and order. Um, and, and there's there's a place for that, right? You don't necessarily have to believe in God to believe that it's important to have some sort of ceremony to mark an important um, moment or an important event in your life. And this is why we see uh, folks like Mandisa Thomas, founder of, of Black Nonbelievers, being uh, an official humanist uh, celebrant, right? To, to be able to provide uh, some of these experiences to people and recognizing the importance uh, of those rituals, I think. So, Chris, as you as you go from location to location talking about your book, what would you say is the biggest misconception concerning Black free thought held by folks? Probably the biggest misconception of free thought in general. I think it's primarily that it emerged out of the European Enlightenment, and this is something sort of alien to Black culture. One of the critiques of secularism I've heard when I present at, you know, at like kind of academic conferences and other venues is that it's solely a Western construction or ideology that that doesn't have any relevance to black life. But an indigenous form of secularism emerged in the U.S. that grew out of the lived experiences of enslaved people. So they didn't have to read Voltaire or Diderot to know that something was off about the idea of a God who, who loved them and cared for them, right? These were organic intellectuals who observed what was happening around them and concluded that there was no God. So that's, that's one misconception about free thought, I think, in general. For black free thought, it's probably just the misconception that it doesn't exist, right? So I, I know you've been working in this field for probably 25 years, but most of the books on this topic are still your own. I would say 90% of them, right? When I began my work, what surprised me the most was how few historians had actually taken up this topic, right? Um, especially since, you know, you published By These Hands in 2003, which is a book that, you know, if you follow the threads of the primary sources, takes you through the history of black secularism dating back to the 19th century, right? One, one more conception about black free thought is that um, it's sort of that it never became as extensive as white free thought due to the innate religiosity of African-Americans. And this again speaks to, uh, to, to what we were just discussing, right? That, that this is some sort of, failure and, and intellectual failure on the part of black uh black people rather than just a simple failure of of white free thinkers to appeal uh to a black audience you know and you mentioned uh, by these hands so i have to give a shout out to norm allen because that book builds on his earlier on his earlier work uh, chris you've been generous with your time so i'm going to limit myself to one last question so as you were doing the research for this project and as you were writing the book, what's the, what is the thing that shocked you most, right? What is the thing that you discovered that just kind of threw you? What shocked me most was really how significant 
this history of black secularism has been and and the fact that for really in every major intellectual political movement um in African American history dating back to the struggle against slavery secular black secular thinkers have been prominent and in some cases leading these movements right um i, I think if if you read chapter 2 of my book you know when you think about the harlem renaissance now i think we need to we need to conceive of that as a secular uh, cultural movement right dominated uh by free thinkers not not even just including a few but dominated from the start with James Weldon Johnson and Du Bois and Langston Hughes and Nella Larson and Claude McKay, right? And I could go on. But that, you know, throughout the entirety of, of African American history, black free thinkers, they, they might not have been numerically dominant, right? Um, but they were so critical in in our key intellectual, political, uh, and cultural movements, so that that was probably um, the the most shocking because I you know I had read a lot of African American and American history um, prior to starting this book, and it's just something that that had not come up from the historians that I had read. Thanks so much for that fantastic book. I enjoyed reading it again for. Uh, our conversation. Folks, you've been listening to a conversation with Dr. Christopher Cameron. There's more to talk about, so check us out again. The Pin Drop Podcast with Anthony Pin is a production of Only Sky Media, exploring the whole human experience from the secular perspective. Visit us online at onlysky.media. Thanks for listening. See you next time.